morning we're going to be in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And you know, this, this morning I've, I've entitled the message, Our Role in Revival. What God wants to do in your heart and my heart to bring revival. And you know, there, there's not a, uh, it's not that God has given us a formula for revival, but in this passage of Scripture, God gives a prescription for how revival was taking place, how revival was supposed to take place in the hearts of his people. Remember, this, this, is, this passage comes, uh, you can read it also in 1 Kings chapter 9, but it's what Solomon said when Solomon dedicated the temple to God. And what God says in that instance, and what he says later on in this passage is, I've chosen this place, this temple for my name to dwell. And, and what it means for you and I is, that God has chosen each of us as the dwelling place of His Holy Spirit. If you have a relationship to Christ that has changed your life, you have been chosen by God uh, to be indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. And while Israel shared a unique covenant relationship with God that, that no other nation in history has ever shared, you and I share a unique covenant relationship with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that covenant means that if you and I will adhere to the principles that God prescribes here, place those things in our lives and be obedient to them, that you and I can claim the same promise of revival that God promised to the nation of Israel. We'll put these things in, in action in our lives. God says this will come. Restoration, revival, these things will come. But hear me, God is not asking for a nation anymore to repent. Okay? He asked Israel as a nation to repent. But God is not asking for our nation to repent. God is not asking for our state to repent. He is not asking for our city to repent. He is not asking for our church to repent. God is asking for individuals to repent. For you and I to understand what it means to walk before Him and to apply His standard of holiness to our lives. And when we apply His standard of holiness to every single area of my life and your life, revival is what happens. When we respond to His holiness, revival is what happens. So this morning we're going to look at some things that God says for you and I to understand our role. That's what we've been talking about the last six weeks. We've been focusing on revival. We're headed to, to a revival meeting scheduled in a couple of weeks. But it's my prayer that revival begins in our heart before we ever get there. And it's been neat to see some things happening that God is doing. So I want to challenge you this morning as we look at this. If you have your Bibles open there to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, if you would please stand with me this morning as we honor the reading of the Word of God. Beginning in verse 14, And my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to the prayer from this place. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. You may be seated. And may God bless his word this morning as we apply it and study it for our lives. The first thing that God says to his people through the chronicler right here, our first role, the first thing that you and I need to do in revival is to understand that humility is the thing that starts my prayer. Look at the first part of verse 14. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves. Now, regardless of what the world says today, everybody wants to be heard. Okay, We want to hear uh, and we, we want to be heard. Okay, I mean, and, and sometimes... 
even our desire to be heard is just very simply a desire. We want to be heard that people leave us alone. We want somebody to hear us. And the world will tell you that the way that you and I are heard is by being aggressive, by being louder, by being more forceful. But the Word of God tells us the way that we're heard is through humility. And what God says, if you and I will get His way down, if we will humble ourselves, He says, I'll hear you. If you'll put this into practice in your life, if you'll understand what it means to be humbled, if you'll do that, I will hear. It's his promise to those who are called by his name. He will hear them if they humble. We can be assured of that. God will hear us. When we are being disciplined, when things are going difficult in our lives, when things aren't happening the way that they should, when the child of God recognizes that, then what the Bible says they are to do is to humble themselves. That word for humbled means to bend a knee. It means to acknowledge somebody else as the authority, to bend a knee, to bow before. And what is unique about the way that this is written in the Hebrew is that it's written to say the one being humbled is the one doing the humbling. This is not something that somebody else can do for you. It's not, I can't humble you. Your husband or your wife can't humble you. Your parents can't humble you, okay? Your boss can't humble you, not in this instance. This is something, the one being humbled is the one who does the humbling. This is a change or a choice, I'm sorry, this is a choice that you and I make for ourselves to be humble. And the Word of God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, make the choice to, to submit themselves to the authority of God in their life. The story of the prodigal son and the Gospels is the perfect example of this practice. Now, the discipline of God had been going on in the story in the, in the prodigal's life for a long time. Okay, he'd, he'd been feeding pigs for a while. He had been hungry for a while. God's discipline had been in his life for a while. But one day, he got up and said, you know what, this is crazy. He said, the, the, the servants in my father's house are in better shape than I am. And, and he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He humbled himself. And Jesus was telling that story to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those religious people. And, and the reality was somewhere right there in the midst of the Pharisees, there were some people who were prodigal. Oh, they were religious on the outside, but their heart was far from God. And in the, in the, in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there were some people who were the angry brother. They were mad because their deal was, God, I've done everything the way you said. Man, I've gone to church. I've, I've gone to Sunday school. I've tithed. I've done. I've lived my life God the way, and it hasn't worked out the way that I thought it was supposed to work out. And so what God is saying through his son, Jesus Christ, is that the father is there. And, and you can see the picture. Jesus is telling the story of the prodigal to the very people who need to hear the story of the prodigal. And what he's saying is the father is here. Robe in hand, shoes for your feet, ring for your finger. All the things of heaven are there waiting for you. All you have to do is say the first word, Father. The moment they would have humbled themselves. The Bible says the Father ran. You and I have been called to humble ourselves before God. God chose you to make you a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And when God chose you to make you a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, 
There will be times in your life and in my life that we're going to be just like the children of Israel. There are going to be some times where we we, we, we distance ourselves from God and God puts his disciplining hand upon us. There are going to be some times where we reject the things of God for our life. We reject his holiness for our life. It it happens, okay? And when, when that happens, God disciplines us, but God doesn't reject us. Jesus, who, who was going into to Jerusalem, the Bible says even though they would betray him, even though he knew going in it wasn't going to work out physically for him the way everybody else thought it was going to work out. He knew that, and yet the Bible says that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem knowing that they were going to betray him. Your father, my father, our Heavenly Father is sitting here waiting for you and I to humble ourselves and come to Him on His terms. And I understand today why the Name It, Claim It, Prosperity guys get this so off. Because in part of what they're saying, it's true. If I will humble myself and I will come to God on His terms and I will submit myself to His holiness and His way and His purpose, then yes, all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. But hear me, those promises don't deal with here. Okay, those, those promises deal with something. Man, if this is the best that there is, we're hurting. It ain't about this. It is about something that you and I can't even imagine. Take the greatest thing that you could ever imagine in heaven and multiply it more times than you can count. And that's what God says. All of that, all of the promises of God, of Christ, are yes. God, God says yes if you'll humble my terms, my way, my submission. So the first part of our being ready for revival is you and I humbling ourselves in our attitudes, our hearts, our actions, our thoughts to keep God a priority. And the second thing is that we will seek his face. Will we seek the face of God? Notice what he says, and my people who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, and seek my face. Three places in scripture. The Bible says that people are to seek the face of God. We are to seek his face. And yet in Exodus 33, 20, the Bible says that God told Moses, this man who was the most humble, this man who was God's chosen servant, this man who who was God's anointed. He said of Moses, there's no one else like him in all the earth. And, And yet God says, when Moses says, can I see your face? God says, no, nobody can see my face and live. Exodus 33, 20, nobody can see my face and live, and yet God turns around and says three different times, seek my face. So what's he saying? Is that a contradiction? No. Those two truths do not contradict themselves. They complement themselves. Israel was being reminded here by the chronicler of who they had been. They had been a people called by God. He is reminding them of whom they are and whose they are. Okay, they had forgotten that. They weren't acting like God's people. And so the chronicler is trying to remind them of who they are supposed to be. And when he writes that, what he's saying is, yes, seek his face. Yes, you have to die to yourself. See, Israel was living life for themselves. Oh, they were going to church. They were observing the fast and all the stuff that they were supposed to do, but, but they were living for themselves. It wasn't about what God wanted. It was about what they wanted. And so God says, die to yourself, seek my face. And then the second part of that is seeking his face means to seek his favor. That everything in my life, I have no shame, no apprehension, no fear to bring every part of my life before God. Now, it's already there, okay? He sees everything anyway. 
but we kind of have this idea that we can hide some things by, you know, I'll just keep this over here, God, and maybe you won't mess with that, okay? You have everything else, but I'm going to keep this part. No, God says that I have no shame, that I'm able to bring everything in my life, and I lay it before him so that my life is open to what he does. It's what Jesus told the church in Revelation, the second chapter, fourth verse, church of Ephesus, he said, here's the problem with you, you've lost your first love. Return, repent, do the things you did at first. It's what Jesus told the disciples in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's, that's what it means. It means that I submit myself, humbly bowing before him, my choice to submit, and my choice to seek his face, to bring everything in my life, to lay it before him, and say, this is God, who I am, and this is what I want to do. You and I have to make a personal choice to seek the favor of God, to seek to be before him. That's what Peter found out. Have you ever really read the story of Peter? and concentrated on some of the things, the little, the little shifts in Peter's life. I mean, Peter's coming along, and Jesus is saying, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're this. Who do you say I am? Peter, man, Peter's, he's been itching for this moment. You can tell, you know, Peter's that guy. He's, he's loud. He's out front. He wants to be heard. He wants everybody to know that he's in the room, okay? I identify a lot with Peter, all right? And, and Peter's there, and he's waiting for this moment. Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus speaks to him and says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, because you, you, you don't speak the things of men, but you speak the things of heaven. God showed you this. My Father showed you this. You made me blessed are you. And in the next instant, Jesus starts talking to him about the fact he's fixing to be crucified. And Peter stands up and says, never, Lord, I'll never let that happen. And Jesus looks at him, just told him. You hear God. God speaks. You've listened. And the next breath, get behind me, Satan. Because you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You see, Peter found out that his purposes, his attitudes, his thoughts, everything about him had to be submitted to what God wanted to do in his life. The rich young ruler thought that. He came to Jesus and said, Lord, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandments, keep them. You know, love, love the Lord God, all hearts, soul, mind, and strength. Honor your mother and father. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit murder. And the young man looks at him and says, all these things I've done since I was a little boy. What? There's something missing. What do I lack? And Jesus said, it's this. Give away everything that you're trusting in. Give away everything that's a priority in your life. And make me the priority. Follow me. And you'll have the eternal reward. The woman at the well, she found that out. Jesus has come and she recognizes there's something about him. He's drawing her. He's talking to her. And Jesus starts getting personal. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. That's right, you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your, he's not your husband. Notice, hear me, please hear the purpose of the story. Hear the reason that the gospel writers included that. Here was a woman that society had cast out. Here is a woman whose sin, as far as society concerned, made her unlovable. Jesus Christ never condemned her. Her sin was not the issue. Her heart was the issue. And when Jesus started getting personal to her heart, she changed the subject. Well, you Jews tell us we're supposed to worship in the temple in Jerusalem, and our forefathers say we're supposed to worship on this mountain. And Jesus said, it's not the issue. 
how you worship, when you worship, what time you worship, the style of music you like, the version of the Bible you like, that's not the issue. None of those things are going to matter. What's going to matter is this. Do you worship me in spirit and truth? Because the one that's standing before you, he's the one you're supposed to worship. You and I need to realize everything about us has to be submitted to who God is. Complete and total that he is Savior and he is Lord and that my life is to be lived in obedience to what this book says, not what I want it to say or not the parts that I like or the parts that I interpret or the parts that I can pull out and say, see, this is what it says. That from Genesis to Revelation, my life, your life, our lives as individuals, I make the choice to submit everything about me to everything that Jesus is. Humble. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. Seek his face. Will we seek the face of God? To seek to bring everything about us before him. And the third thing, very quickly, is this. We must complete the process. Look at what he says. And my people who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. We have to turn from our evil ways. Now, hear me. Recognition leads to the completion of the process. Okay? Recognition is the start. There's something that's not right in my life. I need to humble myself. I need to seek to bring all of my life before him. And when I do that, the third part, the completion of the, of the process, is that I turn away from my evil way. I turn away from my, some of the Bibles may say wicked. I turn away from those things. And, and what God says is this, is that I turn away from those things that are evil. And most of us, if we're honest, say, I know what evil is. The stuff that happened this past week at Umqua Community College in Oregon, that's evil. Okay, I, I can look at that on TV and I can say that's evil. I mean, when, when there's a guy walking around saying, are you a Christian? Yes, boom, shoots him in the head. Are you a Christian? No, boom, shoots him in the leg. Okay, and that's what he was doing. Okay, if you were a Christian, you died. If you, if you weren't, you just got shot in the leg. He singled you out. Now, I, and I am so amazed at the courage of the first one. But I'm even more amazed at the courage of the second one and the third one and the fourth one. They knew what was coming. That's evil. I can look at that and say, that's evil. I can watch uh, something on the Internet where, where ISIS runs 20 Coptic Egyptian Christians out on a beach and takes out a knife and cuts off their head live for everybody else. I can say, that's evil. I can look at what's going on today in our world and I can say, that's evil. And what I know is, that's not me. I can identify evil. That's not me. That's not what this says. See, when God says turn from your evil ways, what he says is things that are bad, things that are hurtful, things that are harmful, things that are disruptive, things that are disrespectful, things that are wrong, things that are displeasing. Things that are wicked, things that are bad. I have seen the enemy, and it's me. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, turn from their evil ways, that I adopt God's standard of holiness for my life, 
that I get his view of holiness for my life. And when I get his view of holiness for every area of my life, that I repent, that I drop it, that I walk away. I don't need to get saved again. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess, if we confess our sin, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all our... I don't have to get saved all over. That's not the point. But it's that I repent. And every day, there is something in my life for which I need to repent. Every day, there's something in my life that doesn't measure up. If I've got the flu, and I don't get out of bed, and I don't interact with anybody, I promise you, I will still sin that day. And there is something that I need to repent of. That's what the Word of God is talking about. Which version of the Bible do you prefer? You know, some like to read the King James, some like to read the NIV, some like to read the New American Standard, the Holman Christian Standard that I read, some like the English Standard Version, some of you like the Living Bible, but I didn't ask you which version of the Bible do you like to read. Which version of the Bible do you prefer? See, Dr. Howard Hendricks, Christian writer, says most of us prefer the reversed Standard Version. We read what God says about our life, and we do the exact opposite. And what I've got to learn to do is to submit myself to what God wants to do in my life and in your life. What's it going to take for revival to come? For almost eight years, I've been meeting together. We've been meeting together with a group of men, and it's open to anybody that wants to come. Men, women, we've had some ladies who've come in the past. And we've been gathering together in our youth room upstairs to pray for revival. And that group has changed. There have been people that have come and gone, people come and gone. But we've been praying for one thing, for God to send revival to this church. And God to send revival to his nation. I know every Wednesday morning when we gather together at 545 to pray, I am praying according to the will of God. I know that because I know it is God's will to revive his people. I know that the moment we begin to pray, even on some mornings when we don't have the right words or don't know what to say, that the Holy Spirit is there interceding for us and taking our feeble prayers and interpreting them into the language of God and the will of God and the purpose of God. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. But what is it going to take for revival to come to this church? It's going to take each of us, firstly, but at least one of us, primarily, to say, I am no longer going to be the one that keeps revival from happening in our church. I don't know who that's supposed to be. But as individuals, what I believe is that it's going to take each of us and mostly one of us firstly saying, it will not be me that keeps it from coming. 
that we will humble ourselves before the Lord, that we will receive the benefits of being humbled, that right now I will begin to lay down those things that are hurtful or harmful, that I will begin to say, Lord, if there is something in my life that is displeasing to you, no longer, Father, am I going to hold on to that. I resign. I quit. I repent. I choose this day from this moment. I'm not going to be the one that keeps revival from happening in my church. And you know what I believe? Not because of anything other than the fact that I've seen it. And I can read books in history and I see it that when one, one person, one child of God legitimately makes the decision Revival is going to come to my heart. You know what happens? The Holy Spirit in the rest of us starts going, I want that. I want that. And the jealousy of the Holy Spirit, God is a jealous God. He wants His priority to be our priority. It begins to well up inside of us and it begins to fan the flame inside of us. And all of a sudden, my heart has changed, and the heart next to me has changed. And you know what happens? It can't stay in just this church. It begins to go to other churches. And you know what happens? It can't stay in just the church. It begins to affect the community. And you know what happens? It can't stay in just the community. It begins to affect the county. I'm telling you, folks, genuine revival is contagious, and all it takes is one of us saying, God, no longer will I be the one that keeps it from happening here. 1904. In Wales, there was a young coal miner, 26 years old. His name was Evan Roberts. And he wanted revival to come to his part of Wales, like what was going on in Britain, and, and literally a revival that was going to sweep the whole world at that time. He wanted those things so badly to come to Wales. And he had felt the call of God upon his life to be a pastor early on, but, but he didn't want to go to seminary or to religious training school because most of the people that he had known who had gone to religious training school, the fire and the passion for God that they had got put out. So he didn't submit himself to do that, but he wanted to preach. And every time he asked his pastor, can I preach? His pastor said, no, you're not trained. No, you can't preach. And finally, after his insistence, one Wednesday night, after their Wednesday night service, after their prayer meeting, the pastor said, okay, you can preach. It was about 11 o'clock. PM. There were 17 people who showed up for Evan Roberts or stayed after church for Evan Roberts' sermon. And he preached a four-point sermon. Here were the four points. We must confess any known sin. Number two, we must disavow any habit that is not helpful to the call of God in our life. Number three, we must obediently respond to the Holy Spirit's leading in our life. And number four, we must go public with our Christian witness. Seventeen people heard the message of a coal miner. Within 30 days, 37,000 people had professed their faith in Jesus Christ in Wales. Within five months, 100 
100,000 people plus. Some estimates say as many as 150,000 professed their faith in Jesus Christ and were baptized and added. It so affected the coal mining industry in Wales that the mule teams who would pull the wagons out of the depths of the coal mines couldn't respond anymore because the language of the wagon drivers had changed so much the mules didn't know what they wanted them to do. It changed the country because one man said, no longer, no longer will I be the one who stands in the way of revival if my people call by my name will humble themselves and pray seek my face turn from their evil way then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land What's it going to take 